Hi, hello, and welcome to this new episode of The Lives and Styles of Old Hollywood. And today I have a first for you, and that would be the first man that I cover on this podcast. Although I find women infinitely more interesting and intriguing, I find that it would be a little bit one-sided if I just covered the extremely interesting women of old Hollywood and leave out all the equally interesting men. So today I want to begin with one of my first screen crushes, and that was Cary Grant. Cary Grant is not only the number two on the American Film Institute's list of male stars of the golden age of old Hollywood, he's also the epitome of style and charm on screen. And as I said, for me personally, it was my first screen crush. And I admit I would still fall for him in his suit with his debonair smile and aristocratic posture. But digging into his story reveals that this is not who he always was. And I want to quote here Cary Grant himself. He said, He's a completely made-up character and I'm playing a part. It's a part I've been playing a long time, but no way am I really Cary Grant. A friend told me once, I always wanted to be Cary Grant. And I said, well, so did I. So that is an interesting take on one of the most exciting male stars of Hollywood. So let's start at the beginning. Cary Grant was actually born as Archibald Alex Leach on January 18th in 1904 in Bristol, England. He had an older brother who was called John William Elias Leach, but he died one day before his first birthday of tuberculous meningitis. His childhood was very sad, or as his ex-wife Diane Cannon would say, he had such a traumatic childhood. It was horrible, just horrendous. His father worked as a presser at a clothes factory and his mother was a seamstress and both had their problems. His father was a severe alcoholic and his mother, who never forgave herself for the death of her firstborn, blamed herself for that and suffered from severe clinical depression. And to avoid losing her second son, she smothered young Archie without really knowing how to give proper love or how to receive affection. So this was a very complicated relationship with his mother and it would actually have a lasting negative impact on his relationship with all of the women that he would meet during his life. Nevertheless, his mother taught him song and dance from the age of four and took him to the cinema sometimes, even though money was of short supply and the family was really poor. And it was at the cinema that little Archie learned to love the great ones of the time, like Charlie Chaplin, Fatty Arbuckle, Max Wayne and Bronco Billy Anderson. But when Archie was nine years old, his father put his mother into a mental institution. But that was not what he told his son. He told Archie that his mother had gone away on a very long holiday. And two years later, he told him that his mother had died. And Archie never forgave his mother for going away without saying goodbye. And it was only 20 years later, on his father's deathbed, that Archie learned the truth and that his mother was still alive. That is such a horrible thing to do to a child. Archie was only with his father. And sometimes they went to the theater. 
And Archie got fascinated by the different performers, particularly pantomime. And he befriended acrobatic dancers, a group that were called the Penders. And he joined them once he had become a skilled stilt walker. And he toured the country and even the continent with them. And apparently, Paramount's Chessy Lasky, who was then a producer on Broadway, saw him performing in Berlin in 1914, when Archie was only 11 years old. One year later, in 1915, Archie received a scholarship to attend grammar school, although they were so poor that even paying for the school uniform was a challenge for his father. But Archie was quite bright and capable in most academic subjects, but he exceeded in sports. So he was intelligent, athletic, slender, he knew acrobatics and tricks, and was a little bit mischievous. He often refused to do homework, he interrupted classes, and he annoyed teachers. Rather than studying for school in the afternoon and at nights, he helped in the local Bristol theatres, learning quickly the ins and outs of the trade, and he became the primary lightning expert when magician David DeCant toured Bristol in 1917. And Archie was only 13 years of age when that happened. So he hung around the backstage areas and he did the odd jobs. On the one side to escape his unhappy home and on the other side to earn some money because they were really poor. One year later, he got expelled from school. He was accused of assisting in theft and being in the girls' laboratory. Some assumed that he wanted to get expelled because only a short three days after being expelled, he rejoined the Pendas. As his father had received a better-paying job in Southampton, but 14-year-old Archie wanted to stay in Bristol with the Pendas, the father signed a three-year contract with his son and the Pendas that included Archie's salary, room, board, dancing lessons and training for this profession until he was 18 years of age. And so Archie stayed with the Pendas, young as he was, and this is how his performing career really began. So what happened next? Again, Archie joined the Pandas in touring the country and in 1920 they went to the US. And apparently they took the same boat, the RMS Olympic, that Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks took when they returned from their honeymoon. Upon arrival, the Pandas performed in the New York Hippodrome, the largest theatre in the whole world back then, holding a capacity of 5,697 people. Their performance ran for nine months with 12 shows each week. Then they started the Woodville circuit and toured the US. But when most members of the Pandas returned to Britain, Archie and some of his co-performers decided to stay in the US. And the next years were what I would call his trying years. Archie tried a lot. He formed two different performing groups. He toured the United States with them. He starred in a variety show. He became a paid escort for famed opera singer Lucrezia Bori. He was a walking sandwich board on stilts on Coney Island. And he performed in the National Woodville Artists Club in New York. Overall, during this time, he developed a lot of artistic and performing skills, like comic timing, doing sketches, juggling, performing acrobatics and riding a unicycle. Probably not the clearest indications that he would become a great movie star, but he learned a lot of tricks and how to move his body and how to do proper timing. And that would come in handy when his Hollywood career took off. But first, the theatre came along. He was cast in a musical called Golden Dawn in 1927. 
when he was 23 years old. So that was seven years since his arrival in the US. He was put under contract, receiving a weekly salary, but this, as well as the following production, were unsuccessful and his contract was sold to the Schubert brothers, the family who established the Broadway district. His co-star later said that Archie had been terrible in his role, but was so incredibly charming that people loved it nevertheless. The play ran for 72 shows. For three years, he did several productions until his contract with the Stuart brothers was ended because he refused to accept the pay cut due to the depression hitting the economy. All in all, Archie Leach was seen as a very promising young actor and performer that brought something new to the stage and the movies. So, naturally, he did not have to wait long. He was scooped up by William B. Friedlander to star in a play with Faye Ray, which led to a screen test for the movies. So, Archie Leach met with Jesse Lasky and B.P. Schulberg from Paramount and he signed a five-year contract at a starting salary of $450 a week. Schulberg wanted, though, that he changed his name to something more American. And thus, Archie Leach became Cary Grant. The name was put together from his character in the last play, which was called Carrie. But the last name, which had been Lockwood in the play, was not deemed suitable. So Paramount gave him a list of last names that they seemed fitting for a movie star. And he chose Grant. So Carrie Grant was born. He started starring in movies with the great ones of the time. His first movie was opposite Thelma Todd and Lily Damity, the wife of Errol Flynn. His next movie was already Blonde de Venus, opposite Marlene Dietrich and directed by Joseph von Starnberg. Subsequently, he starred opposite Sylvia Sidney, Tallulah Bankhead, Gary Cooper, Charles Lofton, Nancy Carroll, Randall Scott and Myrna Loy. None of these films made him a star, but they established him as one of the rising actors to stardom. In 1933, Cary Grant was chosen by Mae West to star in the pre-code movies She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel. These two movies were hugely successful. She Done Him Wrong was even named as one of the best comedy films of the 1930s. The next movies, though, were financial disasters, although most of them were praised by critics. When his contract ended, Grant decided not to renew it, but to freelance instead. Actually, Cary Grant claimed to be the first freelance actor in Hollywood. Since the first movie after that move bombed, he agreed to sign a joint contract with RKO in Colombia, which allowed him to choose the stories that he felt suited his acting style. It was a four-film, two-year contract, guaranteeing him $250,000 of income. In 1937, at 33 years of age, Cary Grant did When You're In Love and was praised by the critics. Matinee even wrote the best thing he's done in a long time. Topper was another success, a screwball comedy in which Cran played a ghost alongside on-screen wife Constance Bennett and the awful truth opposite Irene Dunn. And this movie was the movie that started what film critic Benjamin Schwartz called the most spectacular run ever for an actor in American pictures. So this is when Cary Grant really was put on a winning streak, conquering the hearts of everyone. His next movies, most people who love old Hollywood will know, so it was Bringing a Baby and Holiday opposite Catherine Hepburn, military movie Gunga Ring opposite Douglas Fairbanks, Only Angels Have Wings opposite Jean Arthur and Rita Hayworth, and in name only opposite Carol Lombard, His Girl Friday with Rosalind Russell, My Favorite Wife again with Irene Dunn, 
and the Philadelphia story with Catherine Hepburn and James Stewart. Although we know Cary Grant as this great charmer and suave gentleman, apparently he was really good at more mysterious roles. Hitchcock cast him for the first time in Suspicion. And Geoff Andrew describes this as a supreme example of Grant's ability to be simultaneously charming and sinister. The talk of the town, Once Upon a Honeymoon, Mr. Lucky and Destination Tokyo followed. It was a rigorous filming schedule for Grant, with Destination Tokyo being shot in under six weeks. In 1944, Grant starred in Arsenic and Lace, which is one of my favorite comedies ever, because of Cary Grant. All others are just decorum to make his star shine, I feel. And I'm quite happy that Bob Hope, who was offered the script beforehand, declined. Notorious, alongside Ingrid Bergman, his great comedy The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer with Myrna Loy and Shirley Temple, The Bishop's Wife with David Niven and Loretta Young, Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House and Every Girl Should Be Married followed and made him the fourth most popular film star at the box office in 1948. His very popular movie, I Was a Male War Bride, in 1949 became the highest grossing movie of the year and made Grant one of the highest paid actors, demanding over $300,000 per movie. This particular movie, though, was a battle for him. He did not only appear dressed as a woman with a wig and a skirt, but also he fell ill with hepatitis and lost a significant amount of weight, thus making his appearance in the movie change over time. The next five years were a kind of a slump for him. His roles were not fitting anymore. They were neither critically acclaimed nor liked by the public much. But this changed in 1955 when Grant was cast a third time by Hitchcock for the movie To Catch a Thief opposite Grace Kelly. Going on his own again, Grant, being one of the most demanded actors of the time, decided which movies he would appear in, chose directors and co-stars and negotiated a share of the gross revenue. Very uncommon at that time. He actually received $700,000 for his 10% of the crows of The Catch a Thief. And to compare it, Hitchcock received only $50,000 for directing and producing it. His lead roles in 1957's An Affair to Remember alongside Deborah Kerr, The Pride and Passion and Houseboat opposite Sophia Lorraine, as well as Indiscreet with Bergman, cemented his success in romantic roles. Two of his most successful movies, though, came in 1959. It was North by Northwest, his fourth pairing with Alfred Hitchcock, and according to the New York Times, he handled the role with professional aplomb and grace. And there was also Operation Petticoat alongside Tony Curtis, who, on another occasion for some like at heart, spoofed Cary Grant. Operation Petticoat was the height of Cary Grant's talent for comedy on screen. Not with words, but by his demeanor, his reactions and his facial expressions. And it also was probably Grant's most successful and highest earning film, bringing in $9.5 million. A movie that I personally enjoyed very much and Grant apparently had a great time playing in was The Cross is Greener with Deborah Kerr, Robert Mitchum and Gene Simmons. But it was smashed by critics. But for those that want an additional incentive for watching it apart from Cary Grant, of course, Gene Simmons is divine in this movie. Beautiful, funny, nonchalant, while sporting the latest Dior fashions. So this movie definitely is a must-watch. Although I must admit the story tracks on a little bit. 
Cary Grant's movie, The Touch of Mank, was one of the movies that I actually started watching because of Doris Day. But I enjoyed Cary Grant in it, nevertheless. This movie is especially great for its dresses and the makeover scenes, if you do like the fashions back then. Some of his last movies include Charade with Audrey Hepburn, which is another masterpiece of his, Father Goose, which is basically a complete 180-degree turn from his usual persona because he was playing a coast watcher, a really cruffy one, on an uninhibited island. And his very last film was Walk, Don't Run. That was really not good at all. And he was, like, not good at all. It was just his charm, but his role was superfluous. And... Something that I did not know was that actually Alfred R. Broccoli wanted Cary Grant to play James Bond, which I think would have been the perfect guy for the job. But Broccoli couldn't sign Grant, as Grant only wanted to be committed to one movie and not a whole series. That's why they had to search further and find Sean Connery in the end, who, in my opinion, is the best Bond ever. So, don't want to take sides, but, you know, that's the truth. So, Cary Grant retired after all these successes in 1966, because he felt the golden age of Hollywood was over and he was not interested in the roles anymore. Instead, he wanted to help raise his daughter Jennifer when he was 62 years old. He did get great offers to return to the screen, but did not accept them. Even when Hitchcock approached him for a fifth movie, he did not budge. Instead, in his last years, he would tour the US with a one-man show called A Conversation with Cary Grant, where he would show clips from his films and answer questions. And he admitted that that was actually eagle fodder. And on November 29th in 1986, when he was preparing for one of these shows, Cary Grant felt unwell. And when the doctor came, it became very clear that Grant had a massive stroke. But he would not let those around him call an ambulance. And only when he slipped into a coma, they rushed him to the emergency room, later to the intensive care unit. And he died hours later at age 82. The most important thing about Cary Grant is his style. This persona, Cary Grant. One of the things that make him Cary Grant is his accent. If you are a native speaker, you have heard his voice. If you are not a Native American or English-speaking person, you definitely need to listen to his English original voice because it's very specific and very particular. And it's called a transatlantic or mid-Atlantic accent, which means it's blended British and American. And it probably was because he was born English, but moved to the US at a young age. And he toured so many music halls and cities, both in Britain as well as in the US, and thus heard and emulated so many local dialects that this is what came out. And he made it his own, probably also on purpose, to make it seem more refined and more high society. Because we have to remember he comes from a very poor background and probably always battled with the feeling of not being good enough. So I do think it was on the one hand just accident because he heard so much and he was influenced by so many different cultures and accents. But on the other hand, he probably wanted to sound more sophisticated and worked on it as well. But the accent that he had was very particular. That's why he was sometimes mistaken for an Australian, which led to his first role in the musical Golden Dawn as an Australian. Apart from his accent, his looks were another remarkable feature of his. His style role model was Douglas Fairbanks, that, when we remember, he had met on his voyage to the US. 
Edith Hatt, one of the greatest costume designers of old Hollywood, liked Cary Grant the best and said that he had the greatest fashion sense of any actor she has ever worked with. He was very meticulous and considered every detail in his appearance. And he worked very hard to become the epitome of masculine glamour, as McCann would phrase it. His charm and magic resulted from his genuine charm and his negligence of his own handsomeness. He did not know how good he looked on screen. And he acted and put in the work as if he was just an average man. And that made him seem so genuine and authentic and just lovable. Cary Grant invented Cary Grant how this person would behave, what he would say, how he would move. And as director Stanley Donan put it, his charm and magic was because of the enormous amounts of work that Grant put into creating himself. And Grant actually liked to poke fun at himself in statements such as, everybody wants to be Cary Grant, even I want to be Cary Grant. Archie Leach, who had come from very humble beginning, had created the star Cary Grant, and thus has conquered the hearts of the world. Nevertheless, he never relied on his looks and his appearance and liked to work at his craft to become the best he could be. So this is the persona Cary Grant. Or as Cary Grant put it in his own words, I pretended to be somebody I wanted to be until finally I became that person or he became me. And although we predominantly know Cary Grant for his style, for his persona as an handsome, charming gentleman on screen, he actually was a very savvy businessman. His biographer, Martin Sterling, refers to him as one of the shrewdest businessmen ever to operate in Hollywood. And the beginning of this were friendships with just the right people. On the one hand, it was Howard Hughes who helped Grant get in touch with the right people, gave him the right tips, pointed him towards the right business ventures. And on the other hand, there was Randolph Scott, a longtime friend and roommate of Grant in Hollywood, who advised Grant on investing in the stock market. So basically, by the end of the 1930s, in addition to his great screen success, Grant was already very wealthy. In addition to this, Cary Grant and then-wife Barbara Hutton, together with Richard Widmark, Roy Rogers and Red Skelton, bought a hotel in Acapulco before it was the tourist destination that it would become. And he had houses in Beverly Hills, Malibu and Palm Strings. Naturally, he had the millions from the movie business that he got with the percentages of the gross revenue from the movies as well. But if you thought that this man would sit down and enjoy his wealth after retiring, you'd be wrong. Yes, he did stop acting, but he did not stop working. He got a position on the board of directors at Fabergé, the esteemed luxury brand, which was definitely not just an honorary position, but a true job that required him to travel and to attend meetings. And he is credited to have made Fabergé the successful international brand that it would become. And he was also appointed director of MGM and sat on the boards of MGM Films and MGM Grand Hotels, respectively. He was heavily involved in the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas and promoted the city for an extended time. But he also sat on the boards of Western Airlines, the Academy of Magical Arts, as well as the Hollywood Park. He was a very busy businessman indeed. But what about his private life, his love life and relationships throughout his life? Cary Grant found it difficult to form relationships with women, although he was a very handsome man and was always surrounded by the most attractive women, he never really knew how to communicate with them. 
Nevertheless, he had multiple affairs and dated several high-profile women. He dated actress Phyllis Brooks, Betty Hansel, Sophia Lorraine, Cynthia Bron, photojournalist Maureen Donaldson and Victoria Morgan. And all in all, he was married five times. First, to fellow actress Virginia Cheryl, which ended in a scandalous divorce. And Cheryl accused Grant of drinking too much and hitting her. The publicity surrounding the divorce threatened his public image. Marriage number two was to the wealthiest woman in the world back then, heiress to the Woolworth estate, Barbara Hutton. They were nicknamed Cash and Carrie. But after three years of marriage, they divorced and Grant did not demand a single dollar from his ex-wife, showing how much of a gentleman he truly was. Wife number three was Betsy Drake, also an actress, and the marriage would last for 13 years. Marriage number three was to Diane Cannon and produced daughter Jennifer Grant in 1966. To the millennials amongst us, you might remember Diane Cannon as Whipper in successful series Ellie McBeal. The pair divorced two years later, and in 1981, Grant was married for the last time to PR agent Barbara Harris, who was 47 years his junior. Prince René of Monaco, husband of Grant's close friend Grace Kelly, said about this time that Grant had never been happier than during the years with Barbara Harris. Grant maintained great friendships, not only with the prince and princess of Monaco, but also with Audrey Hepburn and, as daughter Jennifer Grant notes, with people from all walks of life. Some of the most regular people visiting their homes were Frank and Barbara Sinatra, Quincy Jones, Gregory and Veronica Peck and Johnny Carson. One of Grant's closest friendships was with fellow actor Randolph Scott. These two actually were roommates for all in all 12 years, which obviously led to the rumor that they conducted a homosexual relationship, which was denied by both Cary Grant himself as well as by his daughter Jennifer. Nevertheless, there have been rumors and accounts by at least two other men that say they have had sexual relationships with the two of them. We don't know, and I think we should not know. They definitely were a handsome couple in a wonderful house, so what else do we need to know? Cary Cran's legacy is so big, and his biographer called him the greatest leading man Hollywood had ever known. And Stanley Donen, as well as Howard Hawks, two of the most influential Hollywood directors, call him the greatest and most important actor in the history of cinema. And he was also one of the greatest personalities of old Hollywood, swooning girls and women all over the world with his talent for comedy, his great looks and his glamorous appearance. He was not the typical muscular hunk, but an intelligent, good-looking man with great manners and a great sense of humor. And that's a mix that can make any woman's knees weak. So, I love Cary Grant, and I hope you love him too. And if you have not seen his movies, please do so. I beg you, they are just gold. And... As always, I have some lessons, I have something taken out of his life, because I think we learn best from the life experiences from others. So the first, get over your trauma, seek help, because he had such a traumatic childhood. So I think if he had dealt with it properly, it might have been better. He did do so with LSD. He was a proponent of LSD before it was like any real thing and before it was hyped. And he said that it might have helped him to shed some layers. But he also called it the most foolish thing he ever did. Second, you decide who you want to be. Cary Grant is the prime example of 
I knew the person that I wanted to be and I acted like him until I became him or he became me. This is actually what achieving goals is like. You know who you want to be. You know what the person is like that you want to be and that achieves the goals that you want to achieve and you work hard at becoming that very person. Third, invest wisely, invest early, and invest diversely. That's what he did. He was a very rich man and he was not dependent on his screen appearance. That's made it easier for him to become a freelance actor because he did not depend on any studio. He had money. He had the means. He did what fitted his persona and his style. And the fourth, good manners and a great sense of style have never hurt anyone. I think he's a prime example that you do not have to be sloppy and hurtful and hurl bad words around to be a real man. A real man knows who he is and it's in the finer notes that come out who you are. So, yeah, I hope you love Cary Grant as much as I do. And as I said, if you haven't watched his movies yet, please go and do so. I personally like bringing a baby a lot, as well as to catch a thief. So these are the two you should definitely start with. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Lives and Styles of Old Hollywood, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.